biology is, as a system is way more efficient than our human technology is. But we also have the ability to ingest energy-dense chemistry. So a lithium polymer battery is one to two orders or 10 to 100 times less dense with energy than a steak is. So if we can eat a steak, which we, you know, as hunter-gatherers, we can get a lot of these chemical fuels wherever we are, then we can operate for longer. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world with your hosts, David Ye and Puneet Upadhyay. Today's sponsor is MatMatch. With MatMatch, you can find materials for your projects in their free database of thousands of metals, polymers, composites, and ceramics. For example, you could search based on a given mechanical property such as hardness or tensile strength, or simply search by name to find more information about a specific material. You could also find and contact suppliers if you have questions about a certain material, and join more than 2 million engineers and designers who use MatMatch every year. To join, simply go to matmatch.com and start searching for free today. Hello, everybody. Today, our guest is Rob Shepard, a professor at Cornell University, where he leads the Organic Robots Laboratory and has also co-founded the Organic Robotics Corporation. His work currently focuses on using soft material composites to redefine human-robot interactions in wearable robots and in patient care. Thank you so much for joining us, Rob. We're very excited to talk to you today. Thanks, David. And thanks, Puneeth. So first, could you give us a brief overview of what exactly soft robotics means and what this field encompasses? Yeah, this is a field that has become very popular in the last 10 years, but has been around in the current state for about 30 years and has been under development for the last 150 years. And really what defines that development is uh, our control, the synthesis of polymers, as a civilization, humanity's civilization, we've been using polymers for a long time, natural rubber to begin with, which is from a gutta percha tree. But we were very dependent on that alone. We didn't have, we couldn't modulate its properties. And also it would break apart into flakes very easily because it wasn't cross-linked, chemically cross-linked. Real quick, can you define what cross-linked polymers are? Yeah, so if you think of polymers as a bowl of spaghetti noodles, those are physically entangled. They're wrapped around each other. And if you pull on them, eventually they'll unravel and come apart. But you can chemically cross-link polymers. And so these spaghetti noodles are then connected to each other with other much smaller spaghetti noodles. And so then you can pull on it and they'll stretch a little bit, but then they won't go past those chemical connections. And and that happened with Charles Goodyear um, when he put sulfur into natural rubber and heated it up and then chemically cross-linked rubber so that it was tough and we could start doing things like making car tires out of it and the rubber wouldn't flake apart. Fast forward to the 1950s when we had silly putty and uh, the use of silicone. That silicone was also not chemically cross-linked. Silly putty will drip over time, just takes a long time because of how viscous it is. And then about a decade later, the Dow Corning company chemically cross-linked silicone to create something they called silastic. And now we had very tough, very soft uh, rubber that you could stretch a lot and it would come back and lose almost no energy 
um, in the process. So it stores a lot of energy. And when you let it go, it comes back. And most of that energy is given back to the environment without loss, thermal losses to the rubber. And then after that, we start seeing silastic and, and other synthetic like polyurethanes being used in things like human interfaces with machines, like a prosthetic. It, it doesn't hurt as much anymore to wear a prosthesis when you have these very soft but tough mechanical insulators. And then later on, people like um, Suzumori, Koichi Suzumori, started making machines out of these rubbers. And by the way, balloons have been around for a long time as well. And the first implementation of soft robots were balloons. There was McKibben actuators earlier in the 60s or 70s, I think, which were made out of not silicones, but I think, but, but, but might have been actually, I think it actually was natural rubber. And it was wrapped with these fibers that I think at around 30 degree angles, these fibers were. And when you pressurize this cylinder balloon, these fibers would reorient themselves and actually cause a contraction. Even though you're inflating the balloon, it causes a contraction. So you can pull on things very much like our own muscle works. And so these McKibben actuators were very biomimetic, even have a similar force velocity curve to natural muscle. I have a feeling we'll talk about actuators a lot. So can you quickly define that as well? Yeah. Actuators turn energy into motion. Mechanical actuators. There, are, You can also have other types of actuation, but the ones I'm talking about all the time is taking an energy input and turning it into a mechanical motion then to usually to apply a load to something and move it. So yeah, actuators are machines. And these machines that I'm talking about, balloons, they use pressure, change in pressure times change in volume as the energy input to cause a shape change, which then causes a load. And so in the in a McKibben actuator, you're applying like 30 PSI, let's say, of pressure into this cylindrical cavity, which causes it to contract and expand laterally. And when it contracts, you can do pull something like your muscle applies to your forearm to pull it in. And, and so it was very biomimetic in how it worked. But then later on, Suzumori came around and started using silicones for smaller machines that didn't have these fiber encumberments. And these fibers make it so that it's less compliant in, uh, we call it passive degrees of freedom. So an active degree of freedom for the McKibben is what you're pulling against, but a passive degree of freedom would be if you push it from the side, it can move as well. And it has an infinite number of passive degrees of freedom, can move around anywhere. But it's still, these fibers aren't that soft. They do have a high modulus of elasticity, which means that you stretch it a little bit but it takes a lot of energy input to stretch it a little bit. And that's a high modulus. A low modulus means a little bit of energy, of force input to get a large amount of stretch. And our skin is like this. It doesn't take much stress to pull our skin a lot. And so soft robotics for a lot of us is trying to create robots that interact with humans at the same level of stress and strain as our skin has. So these fabrics that McKibben actuators have are, are not that. They're very coarse. Suzumori about 30 years ago, 20 to 30 years ago, made these silicone tubes that inflated and patterned so that they would move in a very biomimetic way. When you look at it, especially at the time when nobody had been doing this, it's like, wow, that's an animal, but it's, it's not, it's just a balloon. And it's very soft. And if it, you know, if it wrapped around your hand, it would feel like an organism wrapping around your hand. So very, very interesting, but it didn't really catch on outside of Japan for a couple of decades. And I'd say that there's two reasons it started to explode in Europe 
there was funding that the Italian Institute of Technology got, I think from the European Research Council to explore biomimetic robots. And that resulted in something called the Poseidron, I believe is what it was called. And it was just a underwater robot that had very soft, actu- soft actuators. There's this person named Ian Walker who started working on tendons, like wires that you pull, and then they move around some compliant surfaces, like things that bend easily. And then in the, and Ian was in the US, but he was doing this a little bit before the federal government in the US started funding through DARPA, which is a, a funding organization, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, funding something called ChemBots, like chemical robots. And this funded some work at MIT and Harvard that created these soft robots. And I was a postdoc there during an extension of that program, Maximum Mobility and Manipulation, which turned these chem bots into soft robots. And then, so now the US, the European Union and Japan and many other countries started working on soft robotics. Now it's a worldwide phenomenon that is, you know, trying to find its home. And, you know, there's a lot of new concepts and sensors. So measuring the environment much of the contributions in soft robotics is in tactile or touch measurements of the environment. And then compliant, infinite passive degree of freedom actuators for affecting the environment from that sensory input. And you know, I measure success in a field by companies. Like, of course, there are many reasons to do research that isn't for commercialization. But when a field has become mature, it starts to produce technology that humanity can use to improve itself. And so then you start to see startup companies that are selling things using reliable manufacturing processes. And, and we're starting to see that in soft robotics. There are several companies that are coming up that are doing good work and, you know, proving the utility. I think I'm just going on. So maybe you had, <laughs> I just pause and say, it's been a long time to develop, but, you know, now it's, now it's mature. And I think we're, we're seeing the fruits of the labor in terms of commercialization. That's a really, really detailed background. I didn't know it was so intense and that it's been going on for hundreds of years. I guess just to break it down a little bit, I know that you have a lot of experience working with the prosthetic arm. Could you tell us about your journey specifically about designing and implementing it and kind of why soft robotics is such a big plus when you think about prosthetic arms? Yeah, like I was saying, the history of elastomers or rubbers in prosthetics is is long. One of the first use cases of silicones was in the um, interface of prosthetics with uh, tissue to soften that impact. What has happened, we and others have been able to extend it from just being a passive structure to an active machine for interacting with the environment. And these passive degrees of freedom increase the affordance or the ability to do the same task with less computation for manipulators. So now we can have a hand that's made of soft material and we have ligaments and muscles and the, the muscles, even when we tense our muscles, we can still you know, pull on it a little bit. They're still compliant. Of course it varies. Like the rock might be a different kind <laughs> of thing, but most people, if you, if you tense your muscle, you're still able to move them around a little bit. But I'd say that what soft robotics allows is a little bit of wiggle and feedback control that wiggle. So when you are plugging in something to a power outlet, you almost never get it in the first time. You get a little bit close, then you move it, and then you push it in. And so what we could do with a, it's a soft manipulator is grab on first. You can grab onto that a power adapter without knowing exactly what shape it is and being able to overexert force on it because your manipulator will fail before the object 
does. And so you want it to be able to grab and then wrap around it versus crush into it. And that's what the compliance allows. So first you can pick up things and that's how we work too. We over grasp. So you can do that now. And that's the, probably the major benefit. The next is that if you miss, there's a lot of degrees of freedom, active degrees of freedom. You can add to it to shift it into place. And the soft sensors that we've developed, the tactile sensation we've developed to complement vision, even with your eyes closed, you could feel that and then move it in. So I'd say it's the confluence of passive degrees of freedom for affordance, easy integration of active degrees of freedom for will, and then feedback, tactile feedback to complete the system. And you can do, because these materials are room temperature synthesized, mostly like rubbers, you can 3D print them. So you can create very complicated architectures for free. So complexity is for free, to quote Hot Lips in, in 3D printing. So you can, whatever you want, you can just print. And it's the same as if you printed a brick, as if you printed La Sagrada Familia. So then you can get away with complex systems. So in what we call the adept prosthetic hand, we 3D printed most of it. And part of the 3D printed components was this rubber wheel. And we would take a tendon or this wire and that wire was pulling at the end of the fingers, much like our forearm. The most of the muscles here are in actually pulling the tendons of our fingers here. Anyway, we use tendons to pull on the fingers of the hand, but they, these tendons are wrapped around these rubber wheels, but the motors, instead of being in the forearm, we have the motors in the hand. So we have six motors in the hand, each motor, is spooling wire around a rubber disc. And that is our passive transmission system. And because we're using rubber as a machine in this way, it allows us to do something at a very small scale that normally a variable transmission system would be big. But here, it's we wrap the wire because it's at a larger radius. It spools quickly, and then the hand can close quickly. But after it closes and starts pushing on something, it then pulls in on that rubber wheel and then now it's at a lower radius and applies higher torque. So you can grasp quickly and then apply a lot of torque. And so it allows fast and powerful grasping, but the grasping is only as powerful as we tune it to be based on the compliance of the system. So we can pick up heavy wrenches. And I think that's about the limit of safety before we can start to actually damage tissue if we started to grab. But, but the whole thing, the whole hand, it has six active degrees of freedom, so six motors. The thumb can move in two directions and the other fingers just close. There's tactile sensing and, and there's actually eyes. So the hand can see too. <laughs> it can see when something's coming at it because it's got little fingers and then it can start grasping on it and then feel how much it's grasping on it for some feedback control there. Variable speeds, all because we can 3D print it and we can we can reduce the complexity and size from using compliant mechanisms, which is from soft material like rubbers. And when you define compliance, is that just the inverse of stiffness? It is. And so since these materials are so cool, can you tell us a little bit more about like what exactly are those elastomers that you're using in your lab? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have talked about silicone before, but and silicone is a rubber and a rubber is an elastomer. In the particular case of this adept hand, we were actually using polyurethane, but overall what a rubber is, so what is a polymer? A polymer is a macromolecule or a large molecule of subunits called monomers. 
But again, back to the spaghetti noodle analogy, they're just very, very thin, atomically thin spaghetti noodles. And they are above their glass transition temperature. So they can, meaning that they're mobile, they can move around. Thermal energy is moving them around constantly. And because of that, in many cases, they're physically entangled. So they can't, it's hard for them to move or they're chemically cross-linked. So they can't move beyond a certain extent, but they're always moving around thermally. And one of the really cool things about them is they are what we refer to as entropic springs. So these polymer networks, as everything is governed by enthalpy and entropy. And entropy is how disordered a system is. But because there's so many you know, astronomical amounts of states that these noodles can be in, they're governed by entropy in most cases. And in, in many models, you can remove the chemical interaction potentials and, and just do the configurational space. And so when you stretch these rubbers, you're taking all these different arrangements they can be in and reducing them to few. The more stretched out they are, the less different states they can be in. And they don't like that. Every, things want to have the most amount of disorder. Right. So you're reducing that. And so you're storing energy in that when you release this loading, now they can go back to the random uh, to their larger configurational number of configurational states. So you pull on it and then you let go, they return. That's using entropy as a spring. And so for whenever you mold these rubbers, you get a spring too. And so that's really useful. So when we pull on this hand, we only have to pull one way. And when we reduce the loading, the transmission system and the fingers, which are also rubber, want to return to their initial shape. So we get this extra degree of freedom without the motor due to the um, elastic restoring force. So anyway, rubbers are really cool. They absorb a lot of energy. You can stretch them over large distances. Like you can stretch something like a centimeter to seven centimeters and back again, that absorbs energy. And then on top of that, them being very tough, like we can take an impact, our skin can, they will restore that energy as well. Our ligaments. So a horse, has this thing called a nuchal ligament. And when it leans over to drink water, you know, it's got a big head. It stores most of the gravitational energy in that elastic energy of the nuchal ligament. And then it relaxes its muscle and then its ligament allows it to come back up. And so most of that energy, and this happens in everything we do, our body is just storing and releasing energy in very efficient ways. So we're not even close to the level of efficiency of using rubbers in our robots, like nature is in organisms. So there's just, even that, there's so much to do with in terms of improving the efficiency of our machines. Wow, that's super cool. I didn't realize that, like, we can almost say that we're almost made out of rubber with the elastic restoring forces. We absolutely are. And a new, new in the last 10 years, hydrogels have become not just for contact lenses, they become an engineering polymer. And hydrogels are exactly what our tissue is. So we're going to get even more close to the chemical nature of organisms with our machines. Shimon He has recently published a paper in Nature on hydrogels that are, I think, as tough as ligaments. And so there's a lot of things you can do with hydrogels on top of just mechanical things. They, there's a lot of ionic interactions you can get, chemical energy storage, resilience. There's just so much to do with hydrogels that you can't do with solventless systems like polyurethanes or at least non-ionic solvent systems like polyurethanes and silicones require. 
Uh, I guess you've talked a lot about all the benefits of rubbers and elastomers and the use of soft robotics. It kind of seems like these elastomers are kind of the only material for the job. So other than elastomers, have there ever been any other considerations, things such as shape memory alloys or other things that have similar properties? But now that I kind of hear about it more, it sounds like they would even fail to the task at hand. So the good thing about rubbers is that they're intrinsically soft. So no matter what shape you make them, because the modulus is low, they're going to be soft. And they do have this entropic elasticity, which is a bonus, but you can architect softness too, which is an extrinsically soft system. So you can take a a sheet of metal or a rod of metal, which is not soft, and lathe it down to be a process in another way to make it a very, very thin thing. And now all of a sudden it bends very easily. And so it's soft too. So even very high elastic modulus. And so meaning a lot of force to stretch it a tiny bit. Gigapascals would be a, a unit of very high elastic modulus. You can make those very soft just by making them very thin. And an advantage you gave an example of shape memory alloys is for a very low volume or low mass amount of material, you can get a high force. So you can pull and they're used in aircraft. Sometimes you get a lot of load at the end of a shape memory alloy wire and reversibly too. So if you apply heat, it'll contract and let it cool down and extend again. So you also get this resilience, but in a different way. So to me, it comes down to the processing. It's hard to, from the bottom up, manufacture systems using extrinsically soft things. But for elastomers, you can do anything you want from the bottom up and it's still going to be soft. Now, is soft everything? No. In fact, soft is bad many times. Like we don't see any, we don't see any mammoth-sized worms, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be scary. <laughs> I would much rather see a mammoth-sized worm than a mammoth-sized mammoth in front of me. <laughs> I guess so, yes. <laughs> but, but there are huge worms underground. They're not that big. I mean, but they, you do get worms, you know, something like this under the ground because they're supported by the soil. But no, I mean, st- hard things are good, but I think we, we have too many we, we solve too many of our problems with stiff systems because they're easier to model. You know, while you were saying that we've had, I didn't realize we've had synthetic polymers around for this, you know, long, the history of it, we've had metals for 10,000 years, 10, you know, hundred thousand years. So we've been engineering with stones and metal for longer than we have with rubber. You could argue that we've been using wood for even longer and wood is a composite of polymers. So, you know, it kind of breaks down, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, I think the main point is that rubber is easy to get things, make things soft from the bottom up using 3d printing. And that's what we focus on. There's many other systems that are beneficial. They just don't work with the process we like. So you're saying that there should be a better balance of, you know, stiff systems versus like compliant systems or softer materials, right? Yeah, I think so. But then, you know, somebody could push back and say, well, the market jerk drives the need. And so what needs are there that require this rebalancing? And then on the other side of it, scientific efforts from, from research institutions are not beholden to the same thing. Like we're not, we don't necessarily have to solve an immediate problem. We're trying to discover new models and to be able to predict things and uh, new under new knowledge that can be used for engineering purposes to create systems. But I'd say that we're at the point now where we have enough scientific understanding of these compliant mechanisms and sensors and the feedback control loops for them 
that we can start to predict how they would be better than other existing systems. And for those cases, there are a few clear wins emerging. Some are in supply chain operations for pick and place of uh, different objects. In fact, on factory floors, underwater robots where buoyant support means that you don't need skeletal systems and you can have very enduring large soft robots uh, in space is probably another one where you can where mass and size constraints are severe in deploying things and these inflatable structures can help and then haptics so wearable systems which are becoming more important for vr what as vr and ar is coming out tactile stimulation and in and in prosthetics which has been a problem for as long as humans have been around and it, it's helping there too so these are all use cases that soft robotics are, is being uh, um, applied to very well and importantly i think you just mentioned tactile stimulation again and we were talking about it with the prosthetic how exactly if i wear a prosthetic do i feel the touch at the hand if like the soft robotic is like most of my arm yeah this is an open area of research and, and we haven't done it but other people have and so one way to do it I believe dan eagleman this is the first thing that's coming to mind. But in one system, you, you'll have like a patch that you will be in a different location from where your sensory input is coming. And that sensory input doesn't have to be where your prosthetic is. It could be vision or it could be some extra sensory that you don't normally have, like infrared or seismic or whatever input and then being output into a tactile stimulation. In the case of a prosthetic hand, you would want it to be the hand is touching and feeling something. And we, we have used stretchable fiber optic sensors for a hand that feels the environment. The next step would be to, to incorporate that into some kind of tactile input to the human, which you know could be something that's vibrotactile, something that vibrates and that, that, that your phone uses. In the case of soft systems, there's a company called Haptics, H-A-P-T-X, that is using little fluidic cells or little tiny balloons that inflate to make it you know, feel like something's there. And the important difference there between vibrotactile and these fluidic systems is persistence of touch and large shape changes. So vibrotactile is just a vibration and it can trick your brain into feeling like you've touched something like solid. It's pretty interesting, but persistently vibrating isn't a good, I mean, I think that representing things in VR with persistent vibration is probably not the right way to do it, but a balloon changing its shape to represent different things. And we did some work on this with um, NVIDIA research on a VR controller that changes its shape based on what you're seeing in VR. And it provided some pretty compelling data points. Haptics is a company that's doing this and selling it. And then like they have a demonstration. I haven't tried it, but one of my students has where you can see a fox moving around in your hand and it really feels like there's a fox moving around in your hand from the glove they have. So, you know, it's something simple and, you know, just using balloons to apply these pressure outputs but you know that that would be a very obvious way to connect a prosthetic that can feel to remotely tactile input from and and the brain's plasticity is something that's being you know researched and it, it's you know because we're so able to remodel our brain that it's perhaps you'd be able to immediately eventually after learning for some time immediately map a haptic response on like your back to your fingers touch somewhere else you know but that hasn't been done enough to know for sure. So are you saying that like potentially the future of VR could be being able to feel like familiar objects, just like, you know, playing games or something like that using soft robots? I mean, I don't think that's my vision. There's a, 
I can't even remember the movie. Enter Player One, I think, is a popular movie that like shows the haptic suit. You know, I love this interplay between science and art. <laughs> and and I think scientists have been working on haptics for a long time, but getting the artistic representation of the future is pretty motivational to communities. And but yeah, I think touch has to be a part of it. Our brain has large amounts of neural circuitry devoted to touch. I've heard from people who work in this space that as much or more than is devoted to vision. And I've heard from vision people that know it's blind. Anyway, this nobody knows for sure, I guess. But anyway, it's clear that if we didn't, if we as humans could can't feel, that's a huge problem. I mean, I could argue maybe even a bigger problem than lack of vision. So anyway, they're both are very important sensory inputs, but in order to experience or immerse yourself in a virtual environment or even an augmented environment, I think touch has to be part of it. We don't think about it right now because it's hard to do. A lot of the vision problems are farther along than the touch ones. So we think VR is vision, but VR is touch. We just haven't gotten there yet. And so you briefly mentioned endurance as a characteristic of robots. And so you told us before that one of the main challenges your lab tries to solve is finding that optimal balance between a robot's endurance and agility. Can you give us an example of the trade-off that's made there in today's robotics and how soft robots could help with that? Yeah, this is more about wheels versus legs. And if you know somebody who has a Tesla that, you know, or anything, actually, autonomous vehicles aren't just electric, but it seems to be more prevalent in electric vehicles, but autonomy and wheels allows you to go 300 miles without touching your steering wheel. But you can only do that, as I like to say, because we spent like a trillion dollars making roads. So things are flat and we can use wheels on it. But if we didn't spend that trillion dollars, then we'd be using horses and horses have legs and that very adaptable to changing. You don't need to make a road for a horse to work. And, and that is what our postal service used for a long time before we had roads. And we've seen legged robots. Like there's just an explosion of legged robots. I think quadrupedal robots are going to be like quadcopters were 15 to 20 years ago. I'm just going to start seeing them everywhere, solving last mile delivery problems, especially pandemic related issues. So anyway, they're, they're here and they're going to be more and more. But right now they're limited to operating in a building for like 90 minutes in a pretty well-known environment. What would be great is if we could fuse the two, like wheeled endurance with legged adaptivity or agility. And the best examples of that are in our organisms. I mean, if we're just to anthropomorphize everything, which we have, because humans have restructured the world to fit bipedal you know, two-handed operations, it's possible that the best robots would, you know, be bipedal, but that's hard to do. So what right now we have quadrupeds and um, these quadrupeds have one arm that can do things like open doors. Like I'm thinking Boston Dynamics is also really innovative. There's Ghost Robotics. There's an innovative company in Switzerland called Anybotics. Anyway, all, all of these systems, I think, could be made better with better perception of the environment, not just vision, but touch, and also more degrees of freedom instead of a instead of a, or just a rubber foot, which they have now, little hands, arms, anyway, just so we can improve these legged robots as well as better energy storage. Right now, a lot of energy 
is donated from for every footstep into the environment and not recovered. So and there's just a lot of things we can do with hybrid compliant soft robotics with existing hard-legged robots and the control schemes that have been developed for them and entirely new control schemes that will be enabled with new processing techniques like neuromorphic chips offerings and like brain-like computer processing. So yeah, the future of robotics is bright and soft robotics will, will be a big part of it. Well, I'm sold on soft robotics, <laughs> but I, I guess so far today, we've really talked about a lot of advantages and there really are a ton of advantages why you would want to use soft robotics. But can you kind of tell us about why soft robotics aren't a prevalence? So what are the disadvantages currently plaguing the area that you're trying to solve currently? Well, I think that mostly it's reliable manufacturing. And I think that's the most new things, new technologies. It's how reliably you can reproduce it. So even... For our group, which is pretty good at making these things, if we hand them off, a device off to another group that is like a traditional robotics group and their experiences in DC motors, DC motors have been under development for 200 years, they'll blow them up. They'll do something, they'll break them. Even though they're very tough, they will find a way to break it. <laughs> and reliably manufacturing so that every single one is exactly the same. And then the specifications for use and then over-engineering the system with safety factors so that they don't fail under misuse, I think is pretty much what's needed. And we have confidence here in that we make a trillion balloons a year and they cost very little. So we know you can scalably and reliably produce soft systems. It was just the things are more complicated than a balloon. And then there's the integration and feedback control loops and integration of sensing. And But injection molding, blow molding, most of our the things we buy today are made I mean, if you do in percentage, you're made with injection molding, which is perfect for soft robotics. And so you you see in, in leading order, Soft Robotics Incorporated has is producing this pneumatically powered gripper that is working for adaptive grasping and um, supply chain management. It's not that complicated, you know, from just looking at it, but reliably producing it in a way that adds value to the people who are buying it instead of a bunch of headaches does take significant engineering challenges. And so that's, I think that's why there are, there are certainly places you can't use it. I mean, a balloon's worst enemy is a needle. <laughs> so, you know, you have to think about all, all these things and define the, the niche for it, but there certainly is, there definitely is. And that's being proven commercially right now. And we'll see more and more examples um, soon. Awesome. Awesome. And one thing that was super exciting that you had mentioned before was like the space exploration and long distance underwater exploration. Can you walk us through the advantages that these soft robots would provide like with a space rover that has to operate in this completely new environment? We were um, funded by NASA from their NIAC program a few years ago with Mason Peck also at Cornell. And this was for making a underwater rover for Europa, which has an icy surface and a liquid ocean underneath. How you get through the ice to the ocean, not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Outside of the scope. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the likely first uses of soft robots will be in, in underwater vehicles where, where they have the buoyant support. That means, you know, the same thing is not just true for our planet, but other planets. And a good thing about a soft robot is it in some configurations, it can just, it can be almost a balloon, which is just a thin sheet of rubber. And what you want is to be able to move it and then direct a sensor from place to place. That sensor doesn't have to weigh a lot. The propulsion, if you can use, I believe the term would be exogenous materials or the materials around you when you are 
in the ocean of Europa, and you can deploy a minimum amount of mass and volume from Earth, then it's lower cost. Let's say you bring it, you somehow get it under the ice, and now you're in the ocean. You could inflate it to a salt water, and then you could start pushing against the surrounding water to move to where you want to go to different locations. The amount of force it takes to move some of these soft actuaries is very small compared to like a metal fulcrum type thing. So you could potentially generate the energy you need from electrolysis of water to create hydrogen and oxygen. However you get under the ocean, under the ice cap, you could probably also use that energy source to electrolyze water to create the hydrogen and oxygen. That would then be used to move the fish underwater, either through pneumatic pressure or fuel cells or combustion of the hydrogen and oxygen. We actually have an underwater combustion-powered hydrojetting paper where we're doing explosions in a robot to push, repel. It's pretty cool. But anyways, by paying attention on how you engineer the motion of the rubber, you can turn a lot of these simple inputs into complex outputs that you could use for steering and getting sensing to from place to place. Also, probably importantly, is we shouldn't try to destroy the environments we're going to. And NASA is very good about thinking forward thinking of this. But the same robots we make could mostly be degradable in some way. So by having some understanding of what the material composition is in the environment, we could probably synthesize a elastomeric robot that could degrade into the compounds that are already there and not affect everything. So lightweight, compressible for, for good payload efficiency, inflatable to large scale so that could be used to put to move sensors from place to place and then the potential to degrade afterwards and not be noticed by the environment, I think are good reasons that are some of that you could do with existing systems, but I think all of it together is, would be hard to replicate otherwise. That sounds amazing. I would love to see the robot that explodes uh, some hydrogen to propel itself. I think one part of what you talked about was really interesting that with organic robot or these, uh, yeah, these smart robots, you could harvest materials on the plant surface. So I know we talked about maybe like wood, like collecting wood. Could you like walk us through like any other possible explanations and like go into that a little bit more? Yeah. So I'd like to say that we do balance fun and science. You know, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is hypothesize, test and build models for predictive purposes. But we also do this from first principles. And so, you know, instead of saying, well, this has worked, this has always worked. So let's keep doing it that way and improve it a little bit. We try to rethink the process and from the ground up and think of different ways to do it. And we use bio-inspiration all the time. So this endurance versus agility front that we're trying to improve, organisms are great at it. You know, we have very high efficiencies, system level efficiencies, like a DC motor is actually like 90% efficient from turning electricity into motion. Our muscles are like 35% efficient. So a DC motor is, is more efficient than we are, but there's a systemic problems if you consider the whole thing from how the energy is generated in the first place that it gets to the motor and then how the motor is integrated into the system. So biology as a system is way more efficient than our human technology is. But we also have the ability to ingest energy-dense chemistry. So a lithium polymer battery is one to two orders or 10 to 100 times less dense with energy than a steak is. So if we can eat a steak which we, you know, as hunter-gatherers, we can get a lot of these chemical fuels wherever we are, then we can operate for longer. And so 
wood, we can't digest it. But if we apply a, f- a flame to it, the autocatalytic reaction produces a lot of energy. So if we could design robots to fuel themselves from you know, uh, different sources of energy that doesn't require plugging in, then we could get some of these endurance. It, we could get enduring robots that could operate for longer periods of time without having to plug in. So like climate change is a big problem, right? So I'm not promoting tons of robots burning wood, a few to, for persistent monitoring of the environment. Like um, one of the, another application for soft robots that we didn't talk about is in agriculture measure, like going right now, we have crop scientists that go out and do a few measurements every now and then because it's difficult and they have other things to do. They can't always be in the field and doing things or they can't always be in the forest. So, but if you could have uh, robots that are patrolling areas, taking measurements continuously, we would have a much better idea and argue less about climate change, I think, than we do now. We would have continuous evidence over large areas. But then we'd have to, if we do it in the current way, one, our robots would probably fall over and not be able to do anything. But let's say we solve that problem. They still need to plug in every now and then, and we don't have power outlets in Siberia or, you know, whatever. So anyway, we're going to, the idea is not necessarily, I just use burning wood as an example, is just to design a robots to harvest chemical energy from the environment for longer periods of operation. So you mentioned that this project is funded by NASA. That's to go to, what is it, one of Jupiter's moons, Europa or something like that? Is that correct? Yeah, Europa. Okay. So how do you approach the challenge of not knowing exactly what is in that atmosphere and like what resources are there? Do you have a general idea or like, how do you go about that? I rely on uh, space scientists <laughs> to tell me what to tell me what is there. I, I really don't know. I'm just going in. So we'll they'll set a just like any engineering challenge. You get a set of customer requirements, which would be defined by the space scientists we work with, and then we have within that our engineering characteristics that we map the customer requirements to, and then we can modulate those engineering characteristics to get something that is what neither side wants, but is the optimal between everything. And so. Um, Usually how you deal with unknowns is by having redundant systems. In this case, we have been streamlining everything. We, have, we haven't considered redundancy yet because we're just trying to get the minimal set of features to work. And after that, we'll add redundant systems to it. So this is a, a question not just about software bikes. Everybody has to deal with this. And usually it's uh, redundant systems. In nature, I mean, this I don't know if this is a, a rule, but it seems to me that the more complex the organism the less redundancy and the more uh, multifunctionality there is, which like, so a worm you can cut in half and then I guess there'll be two worms, but yeah, you can't cut us in half. Not easily at least. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. so anyway, the, we have made, we have, and, and lizards, you know, anyway, you, things can regrow limbs. We can't regrow limbs. I guess there's some trade-offs in terms of the complexity and the benefits of the complexity versus the simplicity and the redundancy. And that is in design, that would be integral versus modular design coarsely. And one of the premises we have as a research group is that in order to get this better combination of endurance and agility, we have to have an integral system with um, very complex multifunctional use of features 
which is why we do 3D printing, because these complexities are easier to deal with when you 3D print everything. Yeah, now all I can think about is NASA sending up some stakes with your robot. <laughs> I, I think our robot would end up being the stake for any organism that might actually be underneath the <laughs> That's the outcome ever is if your robot gets eaten under the Europa's ocean. Well, at least then we we would uh, solve the questions if there's anything down there. So we'll at least answer something. But yeah, there's fantastic cutting edge research that you and other people in the software robotics field are doing. If I was a material science engineering student now entering college, what advice would you have for me if I wanted to get into your industry? One is the field of robotics is largely undefined, but it has been around for decades. And there are many roboticists in that field that has a feeling that all the problems have been solved, that actuation and sensing and stuff isn't a problem and they're wrong. It is a big problem. And so instead of instead of taking the challenge of embodiment to heart, they put all of the all of the effort in the brain and say AI or machine learning or you know maybe not even machine learning, but anyway, the, the algorithms in the central processor are are the that is what have to has to be solved but soft robotics says no you can offload a lot of these computational challenges to the body and the interaction of the body with the environment so i'd say if you end up meeting some of the the entrenched people that might be negative about it, you should kind of ignore them because and that's i think that's you you always want i think generally not just material science but you you there's a distribution of personalities that are from pessimistic and there's optimistic, but the pessimistic people add a lot of value in forcing you to think about what you're actually doing. But if it's all pessimism, then you just have very slow and iterative improvements on what already exists. So optimism says, I'm going to create something new. And, but if you do that blindly without understanding the, the thing, why you're doing it, then you, you, you know, it takes a while for what you do to matter if it ends up mattering at all. And so this, there's a blend that matters. So mm-hmm. I'd say that new materials are very important for robots and you should, you should work with people that have a good blend of optimism and pessimism, whether that be a group that has a distribution of optimistic people or people themselves that are self-critical, but, you know, don't let that get in the way of, you know, trying out new ideas so yeah, posit- yeah, positivity and practicality, I think having a good blend of that is important. Absolutely. And that seems to tie into what you mentioned before about first principles and not just assuming that what's been used in the past is like the best option moving forward. And I think you can be really successful if you tie in the first principles idea with the work, working with a distribution of positivity and negativity or optimism and pessimism. Thanks, Gwyneth. I agree with you. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today. We really learned a lot about soft robots and their several applications. It was super intriguing. So um, I really appreciate you coming onto the show. Thank you. Thanks. I enjoyed being here. Nice, nice talking to Gwyneth and David. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. If you'd like to meet other passionate material scientists and engineers and discuss all things MSE, join our Discord community using the link in the show notes below. If you want to support us and the growth of this podcast, 
please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share this show with your friends and family. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow this show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. The links will be provided in the show notes below. We'll see you soon, and in the meantime, go change the world.